Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, The Andrew Lawton Show on True North, midway through the week, although it's like the first day of the week I've been doing a show. So uh, you'll understand why tomorrow, yesterday, we were, it was a combination of, of things, but I was recording an interview, which uh, we're using for the show tomorrow, and we just weren't able to make it work with being able to be in a, a studio in one place in one time, and it, we were coming off a long weekend. And I'm making excuses here, but we'll try to make up for it in what time we have left in the abbreviated post-family day week. I hope you had a good long weekend. I had a busy morning. I was in Kitchener, Ontario for a press conference that Conservative leader Pierre Polyev was holding. And man, oh man, did a lot of, well, person, oh person. You can't say man, oh man anymore. It's a hate crime. Uh, person, oh person, did a lot of news come out of this press conference. We got uh, Pierre Polyev saying that we need to protect women's only spaces. We had Pierre Polyev saying we need to mandate age for people viewing online porn. We had Pierre Polyev talking about what I am going to be spending the first bit of the show talking about, which is the importance of resisting the Liberal government's uh, incoming ban on online so-called hate speech. Now, you'll know why I do the air quotes there, because oftentimes when you talk about this topic, you'll say you'll hear people say, well, hate speech isn't free speech. And I'd say, well, free speech is free speech. And uh, the issue is always in how you define these things, because uh, what the Liberals often want to call hate speech is speech that may be unpleasant or unkind, but is still part of what you should be allowed to say and think in a free society. But the liberals don't believe that. They are not actually minded to embrace a free society, certainly when you're discussing the idea of speech and of controversial or contentious opinions, which is why they've been so eager, enthusiastic to regulate what you can say online. This has always been, for me, the hill to die on. It has to be. Free speech is so important. It is the speech that you need to defend and uphold and protect all other uh, rights and freedoms. That is what free speech is. And the thing about it is that the Liberals tried this in 2021. They introduced a bill that would have regulated and banned so-called online hate speech. It would have lowered the threshold that exists under the current criminal law for hate speech, which has a very, very high bar and needs to have a high bar. And they have promised this omnibus online harms bill. This bill is going to do a number of things. The bill is going to talk about pornography. It's going to talk about uh, terrorism content. It's going to talk about hate speech. And they do this all in one place. So that if you criticize the bill because you don't like the implications on censorship, they can turn around and say, you must be comfortable with terrorist content or you must be comfortable with child porn. This is what they do. So I think we need to unpack this bill when we see it. It's going to be coming in the next few weeks. But there were some media reports, some leaks from the liberals that share some details that are likely to be in that bill. And there has been all but confirmation on this that the bill is going to go after that online hate speech issue. Now, to give you a brief history on this, there used to be in the Canadian Human Rights Code, or the Canadian Human Rights Act, rather, a prohibition on communicating hate speech online. It was called Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. It was used to prosecute under the human rights regime bloggers, people like my late friend Kathy Shadle, faced complaints under this. And it had very direct implications on free speech because it was a bill that licensed government censorship. It licensed sanction by the state 
if you say unpopular or unkind things online. So the Liberals, in their previous attempts to bring this back, had a supercharged version of this, where not only did they reinstate Section 13 and have this ban on online, uh, again, hate speech, but they also included a mechanisms to force social media companies to take action against this. So all of a sudden, the government is deputizing Facebook and Twitter to be the censors of what it believes is, again, so-called hate speech. So with this news that came out this morning, I asked Conservative leader Pierre Polyev at the press conference if the Conservatives would stand opposed to this ban when it comes in. And he gave a long, long answer, which is good because I think it had a lot of material in there that we can work with. But I just wanted to warn you in advance, this is like a three and a half minute clip because once you've asked the question, he basically can do what he wants. But this was what uh, Pierre Polyev said. Well, I think you get to hear my question as well. But this was my question and Pierre Polyev's response from this morning. Morning, Mr. Polyev, Andrew Lawton, True North. The federal government has said that its uh, online harms bill is imminent. Uh, they've said this bill will include, among other things, a ban on, on so-called online hate speech. As you know, the Conservatives a decade ago repealed Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, which the Liberals ha have talked about reintroducing and, and tried in the last parliamentary term. Will the Conservatives oppose the reintroduction of these provisions and the Liberals' approach to so-called online hate speech? Yes, we will oppose Justin Trudeau's latest attack on freedom of expression. And um, I want to ask... What does Justin Trudeau mean when he says, when he says the word hate speech? He means speech he hates. So, for example, let's go through some of the things he said is hate speech. Jerry Butts, the PMO uh, puppet master, said that it was hate speech to criticize Trudeau for using the ridiculous term people kind. Right? <laughs> the Justin Trudeau said anyone who criticized him during the pandemic was engaging in hate speech. Um, basically, anybody who disagrees with his radical agenda when it comes to kids, he says, is hate speech. He attacked Muslim parents who were protesting against his agenda. Is he going to criminalize those Muslim parents for protecting their children in schools? Uh, go down the list of things that Justin Trudeau disapproves of, and you can imagine all of the things that will be criminalized. And then there becomes the question of who is going to be in charge of determining what is hate speech. Um, recently, a school board in Ontario banned Anne Frank's books. Okay, <laughs> so would that be considered hate speech under Justin Trudeau's woke? Uh, authoritarian agenda, I think it would. So anyone who thinks that speech they don't like is going to be criminalized and therefore the bill should be supported, go through that. Those people should go through the, the list of their own thoughts that Justin Trudeau cons considers to be unacceptable views, and you can assume that he will ban all of that as well. And finally, I point out the irony that someone who spent the first half of his adult life as a practicing racist who dressed up in hideous racist costumes so many times he says he can't remember them all, should then be the arbiter on what constitutes hate. 
Why doesn't he, what he should actually do is look into his own heart and ask himself why he was such a hateful racist for, despite his enormous personal privileges of a multi-million dollar trust fund, being the son of a prime minister, uh, growing up in mansions, traveling the world, why he had so much hate in his art that he was uh, such an awful racist. And what he should do is actually explain where that ugliness came from, and maybe in that way, rather than through coercion, he could uh, help in, uh, us all in the fight against real hate. Thank you. <laughs> Man, where, where do you even start on an answer like that? He talks about Justin Trudeau being a racist. He says Justin Trudeau is a woke authoritarian. He says Justin Trudeau cannot be the arbiter of what you can say or do online. We even got a Jerry Butts reference there because Jerry Butts likes to take aim at opinions and expressions he doesn't like online. So there was a lot there. I mean, the core policy was an unequivocal one that the Conservatives will oppose this bill. The Conservatives will oppose the reinstitution of Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act and in general, the Liberal government's efforts to rein in online speech. Now, this is crucial. I, I mentioned at the outset of this show, and I've mentioned time and time again, that free speech is my hill to die on. And, and you know, it, it's been said, and it's not an original thought on my part, that the reason free speech is so important is because if every other freedom were stripped away and you were left with only that one, you could then use that freedom to argue and fight for your other freedoms. It's the one that if you don't have, you have nothing. What is democratic freedom if you don't have the right to speak? about politics and about politi the political process. What right is, I mean, basically, what, what good are a lot of the rights and freedoms if you don't have the right to have your own expressions and, by extension, your own thoughts? Because when you regulate speech, you are regulating thinking. And again, you have to pull yourself out of the mindset here of, well, I don't like hate speech. and No one likes hate speech. No one likes the idea of it. But I bet if, uh, you know, I were to grab five of you and say, what is hate speech? you're going to have wildly different beliefs on what it is. I'll give you an example. Twitter, before Elon Musk purchased it, used to say that dead naming someone fell under its hate speech policy, which is to say that if I one day say I'm actually transgender, you must call me Andrea Lawton. Uh, don't picture it. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, if you call me Andrew... That could be under Twitter's terms of services, hate speech. Now, that was not the law. Twitter can decide for itself how it wants to govern its affairs. But at the time, that was one interpretation of what hate speech was. Using someone's former name, the name by which you may have known them for many, many years, that would be a form of hate speech. The Ontario Human Rights Act says that misgendering someone is a violation of your Ontario human right to gender identity. So it stands to reason that if the Ontario Human Rights Code had a hate speech provision like Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, if that's brought back, their view would be that misgendering someone was hate speech. They already view it as being discrimination. If you are misgendered in the waiting room of your doctor's office, that could be a legal discrimination claim that you have against your family physician's kind receptionist. So for starters, we have a major problem here of who gets to decide. The other aspect is who is responsible for enforcing. Because we have a body, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which would be the one that had to adjudicate if you had a complaint under the Human Rights Act. Now, 
when you talk about social media companies, now all of a sudden the government is looking to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and saying, you guys are the one, sorry, you people, you people out there, you people kinders, you are the ones that have to enforce this edict. So all of a sudden, Facebook is going to be on the hook for some bajillion dollar fine if Facebook is found to have not sufficiently acted to take your hate speech off the internet. Now, Facebook, as we've learned, doesn't really want to deal with the pesky regulatory environment of the Canadian government. It's a lot easier for Facebook just to say, you know what, we're pulling out of Canada. Or, you know, it might be more expedient for Facebook to say, fine, we don't want to just argue with Canadian speech bureaucrats. We'll just take the content down because that's so much easier. Now, if Facebook makes a decision to do that, who is your complaint with? Is your complaint against Facebook, a private company that has real no real standing before the Human Rights Commission, or is your complaint against the government who can turn around and say, well, we didn't censor you, Facebook did. We didn't punish you for what you said, the social media company did. So right here, you have just off the top of my head, a couple of the big problems with the scheme that the government has proposed in the past and is likely to propose under this bill to regulate speech. And then you have the fundamental free speech aspect, which is that the government is going after speech. It's drawing a line for what is legal and illegal speech that is lower than the very high criminal threshold that already exists. And as Bruce Party, who's a phenomenal lawyer and law professor, has said time and time again, if something is illegal offline, it's illegal online, which means we already have hate speech in the criminal code. So why do you need a new law? If, if you cannot legally say something on the street, you can't legally say it on Facebook or Twitter. The only reason the government has to put a new definition here is because they are putting a sub-criminal threshold in. They're lowering the bar, which means more things are going to be caught by what hate speech is. And as the government has said, they, they've taken their inspiration for defining hate speech from a, a former Supreme Court decision, which is called the Watcott decision, which has a number of very concerning things in it. Number one, uh, something, was, something could be true and still hateful. So that, that decision actually says, if you read it, truth is no defense. So how are we supposed to believe that this is not going to be abused if and when this becomes law? I want to welcome into the show Josh DeHaz, who is a lawyer with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, where he is also a preeminent podcast host, a competitor, but he does great work over there alongside Christine Van Gyne and Joanna Barron. Josh, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here. So I, I want to talk about this uh, free speech fight in, in Prince Edward Island in a few moments, but but just on the online harm stuff, obviously we have to wait for the, the text of the bill to come out, but we know from the first version of it and what the government has said in public messaging, what it's likely to look like here. This is going to be just a feeding frenzy for civil liberties lawyers it, it, based on like any interpretation of what they're coming out with, right? Yeah, well, if if they come if they come out with a bill that brings back something like Section 13, you know, if anything that looks like what they proposed under B, Bill C36, they're going to have all kinds of challenges because you know it's just would not be constitutional to do something that extreme to have you know twenty thousand dollar fines for um, things that you 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 say on the internet that uh, somebody finds offensive, and so. We really hope that that's not what they come up with. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, for the details. In terms of this idea of an ombudsman, or I think we're supposed to say ombudsperson. So tisk, <laughs> Yeah, tisk, it's, the, it's actually hate speech if you say ombudsman. Uh, it could be under this new bill. So I'll, I'll just go with the ombudsperson to be careful here. 
um, that raises all kinds of other potential free speech issues here. You know, if they go with uh, 24 hour takedowns, uh, that is just going to lead Facebook and other, um, you know, other internet uh, service providers to take down anything that could put them at risk or make them liable. So that would be a huge free speech issue too, that we would have to, to try and attack. Yeah. And, and I, and I, maybe I'm, again, I'm not a lawyer. I, I play one on TV sometimes, but the, the one thing that comes out here is that under C-18, the liberal government put this uh, regulation, this requirement on, on companies like Facebook and Google and said, you guys have to pay news companies if you're going to have news on your platform. So Facebook says, all right, it's not worth the hassle. We're just going to ban news. We looked into it. We got a legal opinion because we were wondering if we could sue the government and every lawyer we talked to said, well, no, because Facebook made the decision. I mean, they may have done it in response to legislation, but your issues with Facebook, which has, I would concede, no legal obligation to allow anyone to use its platform. You apply that here, and I worry that the same thing applies, where Facebook will just develop a broad terms of service to encompass the law, but if Facebook's zapping your content, where's your recourse if you've been censored? Do you even have any? Yeah, that would be that. That's that's the issue here. So I think you could still uh, mount some sort of challenge, but it would be very difficult to do if Facebook itself wasn't uh, getting involved in in that sort of charter challenge. Um, the other the other concern I would have is that companies like Facebook might just leave Canada, and you know people laugh at that. But right now you have similar sorts of legislation in the European Union, and uh, they're 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 telling Twitter all the time, look, if you don't comply with the, with our uh, requirements and uh, you know get rid of more of what we consider misinformation then we might kick uh, Twitter out of Europe and it Canada is a lot smaller Twitter probably cares a lot less about us but there's a possibility that if uh, Twitter is faced with some sort of legislation that says they have a duty of care to take down information that is so-called you know misinformation or discriminatory that they might just pull out at some point. Let me ask you about that, that that arbitrator aspect here, because a lot's changed in the internet in the time that uh, Section 13 was there originally. It was repealed in 2013 to now. Uh, social media companies are much more powerful. We also have a government that I think has been much more emboldened on this idea of, of reigning in online hate, whereas Section 13 was really created in response to fax machines, <laughs> if you go back to the to the origin of it. So this idea of supercharging it by putting all these requirements on, on tech companies, I see as being quite problematic, but they also seem to think that they had kind of charter proofed that the language with Bill C-36 by, by drawing from the Watcott decision. I was wondering if you could just give a, a brief primer on, on how that decision framed what free speech and, and hate speech in this context are. Yeah, so Watcott uh, attempted to say that there is, you know, a line over which you cannot cross between uh, speech that's acceptable and speech that is hateful and can be constitutionally limited by by the criminal laws. And, you know, what, what ends up happening when you try to draw those lines is you just end up using a lot of synonyms. So <laughs> Watcott says, you know, basically, if your speech is inciting, you know, detestation against a group, that's illegal. But if you're just offending a group or uh, being hurtful towards a group, that's not okay. So uh, I, I don't know how any reasonable person can tell the difference between words like, you know, detestation or, you know, extreme dislike, which is another one that's apparently okay. 
And uh, so all that Walcott really clarifies is that there is some line and it's really hard to know where that is. Um, with criminal It's, it's going to be like the old I know it when I see it uh, interpretation on pornography, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And if, if, if there's that much subjectivity involved, then you're really at the mercy of whoever the decision maker is. And let's say there's some, you know, digital safety czar or ombudsperson, as I guess they're now called in the legislation, it's going to be up to, you know, their their tastes and their view about what is um, what is hateful and what isn't. And that's where the problem comes in, because these are you know government appointees and uh, what they're offended by might be perfectly legitimate speech. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, people when they have this debate, I mean, the big problem we run up against is that people have trouble separating their emotional valuation of a particular expression from whether it has merit as a legal form of expression. And again, we do not have a right to be comfortable. We do not have a right to not be offended or bothered or perturbed. Now I'm the one using all the synonyms. And I think this case in, in PEI is a great example of this. You have a, a counselor there in, in Murray Harbor, a very, very small community. I don't even think it's at town level. I think it's an even lower threshold than, than town. And my, my colleague, Lindsay Shepard, wrote about uh, John Robinson a while, uh, Robertson a while ago. Uh, he put up a sign on his own property and the sign, we have a picture there, uh, truth, mass grave hoax, reconciliation, redeem Sir John A's integrity. I think it's pretty clear what he's referring to on, on both counts. And you may drive by that and say, I agree, I disagree, doesn't really matter. He's now facing potential removal as a counselor over this. So explain what's going on here. Yeah, so so John put up this sign back in September, and this is a sign. It's one of those signs where you can you know change the plastic letters. I think you just showed it um, that you see outside of you know churches or sometimes you know town halls, and he uses this just to spread his messages. Often it's things like you know happy uh, congratulations to the newlywed couple or you know there's some festival coming up and he wants to advertise it, but uh, occasionally he uses it for more political speech. And uh, in this case, he put up this sign because he's angry about the idea that um, in 2021, uh, everybody was sort of led to believe that these mass graves had been located at Indian residential schools when in fact, what was most likely found were, were, were cemeteries with unmarked graves. Obviously very sad what happened at residential schools, but he he's, he's, he's annoyed that this narrative sort of persists. So. Um, obviously this is pr his private speech on his private property, but his fellow village counselors didn't like this message. So they went after him using their code of conduct bylaw and, you know, municipalities across Canada have these codes of conduct. They're, they're, they're meant to, you know, prevent city councillors, town councillors from doing things like harassing staff members or embezzling money or, you know, having things that look like conflicts of interest, but in recent years, we've seen them start going after fellow councillors for their political speech. And that's what happened to John here. You know, they did a big investigation. They found that he breached sections of the code of conduct related to ethical behavior that related to, you know, discrimination and harassment and arranging your uh, private affairs in a way that inspires public trust, all of which is uh, irrelevant to the sign because it was not nothing to do with his actual job as a village councillor. It was just a sign on his property and it's political speech, which is the most protected type of speech. So you would think that they would 
not be able to sanction him for for his sign. And we're pretty confident that they violated the the constitutional guarantee for free speech by by uh, sanctioning for him. They gave him a, a five hundred dollar fine, uh, suspended him for six months, and demanded this forced apology to to them and to the indigenous peoples. And uh, he refused to do that. So now the minister has launched an inquiry where one of the possibilities uh, as a, at the end of that is, is his removal. So just, you know, a, a, an official uh, on town council being removed for his political speech. And, and they haven't really flinched or uh, blinked in this since he, he's, you know, secured legal representation through, through you and the CCF? So we, uh, we haven't heard anything from the town. They haven't flinched. Um, what I can say is, uh, well, the town very, very obviously messed up this investigation and this whole process in many ways. Uh, but the minister, uh, in, in a sense, may have flinched because he issued an order in December that said, you know, you have two days to accept these sanctions, including the ap apology or resign. And uh, John Robertson, he didn't he didn't do that at the time. You know, he was sort of looking for legal counsel and he was uh, on vacation. So he, he but he didn't do that at the time in any event. And the minister, I think, subsequently realized that um, there may have been some problems with this investigation mm -hmm. and the, the sanctions, uh, the way that things went about. So he rescinded that order and he uh, issued a new order for an inquiry. So now he's gonna sort of redo all of the, this investigation about whether John's sign somehow breaches this code of conduct, which I, I think it pretty clearly does not. I, the thing that I find so in incredibly, incredibly concerning about that, well, I found a lot of it concerning, but he's expressing a political opinion. He is an elected politician. Now in this particular case, I don't think it's a position that Murray Harbor PEI necessarily has to deal with at the local level. It, it may conceivably, I, again, I, I don't know if it's near any indigenous communities, but the, the fact of the matter is that when you have a, colleagues that are weaponizing this code of conduct process for people expressing political opinions, they're effectively overriding the democratic process. They're overriding the fact that constituents have the opportunity to vote politicians in or out based in part on their political beliefs. Yeah, that's ex that's exactly right. So uh, it's 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 very crazy here that the minister could remove this person for for his speech. I mean, that's up to the voters. And, you know, there's there's this idea that uh, his speech was very controversial and unpopular. And that seems to be the case in public. You know, the, the town did get a lot of emails and things like that that were from people that said he's a residential school denialist, which is absolutely not the case, um, or that he's, he's uh, you know, harming reconciliation. But there is also a silent majority out there that thinks, you know what, we were misled by the media in uh, 2021, or at least by by some parts of the media, and uh, they might they're they're on John's team. You know, they're sending donations to the CCF. They're signing the petition on our website, and they're emailing John to say, you know, we're with you. Just because you don't hear them publicly all that much doesn't mean that they're not out there. So um, we we should uh, at, at the end of the day we need to wait till uh, the next election, and then it will be up to the voters if John runs whether to reelect him. All right. Well, and he got to watch, has to watch if he uh, promotes himself on his sign. He may get uh, slapped down again there. Uh, Josh DeHaz with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, also one of the hosts of Not Reserving Judgment. I think you have a new episode today, right? It's uh, Wednesdays? 
We do, we do. And we're talking about this online harm stuff. So you can uh, hear more of what we have to think about that and uh, some of the rumors we've heard. So all right perfect check it out lawyers peddling and rumors that's uh that's that's very edgy in your world all right josh thanks very much really good to talk to you again great thanks andrew all right we're doing all the hot button issues today we're doing free speech we're doing hate speech and we will also do assisted dying made assisted suicide it goes by a number of names but it, none of which uh, mask what is actually at stake which some people try to obscure let me share this clip of an exchange between conservative mp garnet jenis and a liberal parliamentary secretary on what made really is Questions and comments of the Honourable Member for Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I, I have a question for the government about their, their so-called made policy. Now, they've said repeatedly that, especially as it relates to mental health challenges, their made policy would aim to exclude those who are suicidal. But I want to understand from the government, isn't any person who requests made suicidal simply by definition, since they're requesting made? The Honourable Parliamentary Secretary. Your very important question. I think it's irresponsible and untrue, honestly, to claim that MAID has anything to do with suicide. The Government of Canada recognizes the importance of all Canadians to have access to critical mental health resources and suicide prevention services. I am a member of the Special uh, aid, uh, MAID Committee, and not one witness that I heard when I was there said that this is suicidal. So assisted suicide has nothing to do with, what's that? Suicide, okay. A little bit of wordplay going on from the Liberal government, a Liberal government that has committed to a massive expansion of medically assisted dying, including to people who are grappling only with mental illness. I've shared on a number, number of occasions my own struggles with depression, my past attempt at suicide, attempts at suicide, in fact, one of which was very, very successful almost and uh, ne nearly ended my life. I'd say it was truly successful that I failed, but at the time, my endeavor was to end my life and had made been available to me as someone with mental illness, I very likely would have tried to go that road. Now, uh, made is increasingly used by people who have run out of options because of the healthcare system, not because they are dealing with a terminal and irremediable condition as the legislation is supposed to restrict it to, but because they have run out of options, they have had troubles accessing adequate care. And for all that we hear talk about healthcare equity and people who are unable to access healthcare for a number of reasons, why are we seeing such an expansion of MAID? This is something that was put in a very, very uh, important piece in the McDonald Laurier Institute by a doctor in my neck of the woods in London, Dr. Ramona Coelho. Barriers to care persist, but access to MAID keeps expanding. She joins me now. It's been, been many years since we've spoken, Dr. Coelho, but it's good to speak to you again. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. So explain to me first off this apparent double standard here. On one hand, we hear people say that there are these health equity challenges, people in marginalized communities, people with disabilities, they all have issues navigating the system, but many of those people are the ones that are being directed by practitioners at, at many points towards MAID. Yeah, it's very disturbing right now in Canada, the laws for medical assistance in dying are so permissive uh, aiming uh, and considering only the narrow lens of accessibility um, when we are in fact talking about suicide. 
And so actually we need to protect Canadians by having many safeguards and we need to have strict, strict eligibility criteria, which we do not have. And so although uh, MAID is supposed to be a compassionate service, apparently for people who have nothing, we have nothing left to offer, it can easily be offered or be used um, when people have no other options. I was recently interviewed for an Al Jazeera documentary on the life of Rosina Camus, and you can see she had her own recordings and writings near the end of her life. You can even see part of her made assessments and, and how callous that whole um, experience was. Um, you know, the made assessor offering to kill her on the weekend if she had time and um, the real poverty and loneliness that she experienced um, that led to her desperation. So the potential for abuse of, of people being taken um, advantage of by a, a government system is, is real. As the stats currently stand, you know, you have uh, made assessors and providers uh, that are speaking out in Health Canada saying that, no, this is actually mostly like wealthy, privileged people who are choosing this. We don't have to worry. Most of our cases are for people with uh, who are near death. Uh, my article talks about how uh, the Canadian Assessors of Maid, uh, the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers actually has created policies to seemingly circumvent those safeguards so that even if you have just a disability, you're not dying. If you state your intention to refuse care, they can treat you as if you have a terminal illness and end your life immediately. And so you have even less time to recover, even less time for sober second thought. And really that changes how we can interpret the Health Canada reports and stats because people with disabilities who are marginalized can be hidden under track one as if they had a terminal illness just because they were refusing to eat and drink. I mean, a lot of Canadians have heard, if not, they certainly should, that the famous case of the woman who needed a, a chairlift in her home and was offered assisted suicide instead. But there are a number of examples of this, and you, you allude to this in your piece, where people in the disability community are sounding the alarm about this. And the tragic reality is when you have made being pushed on people that have disabilities that aren't in a, a terminal illness, it's because their life is being valued at less than uh, that of someone without the disability by many of these practitioners, is it not? Uh, absolutely. Um, so basically you're making, my, my friend and excellent author, Gabrielle Peters, always talks about how our government has created a killable class, a class mm -hmm. of people that are seen as having lives less worthy, um, maybe not even less worthy, but that is merciful to help them end their lives and really that is based on bias and stigma. The ideas, the false ideas that somehow they don't, first of all, they don't enjoy their lives. Most studies show that our society and physicians uh, rate people's quality of lives with disabilities as quite low when they do not. And, um, and, and also so that you have this kind of idea that we're, we're offering them a mercy and a way out because really wouldn't they rather just be dead? which couldn't be farther from the truth. But when you have a program that targets people like that, basically when they're suicidal, like Andrew, you shared that you were suicidal at some point in your life. I have also been, but if we appear able-bodied, then all of a sudden we develop, we deserve suicide prevention services. Although it looks like MAID will potentially expand even for people like us. But for now, if you have a physical disability, 
if you are suicidal and it's a little bit more longstanding, you might get made. One thing that I, I've always struggled with on this is that it seems like a lot of made providers are already operating well outside the legislation as it's spelled out. I, I mean, we, we've heard number a number of cases about this, and I'm I'm wondering how that was allowed to happen. Is is this coming from regulators that aren't really caring or checking up, or, or is it just uh, you know re, pro, like these these made assessors and made providers are are just knowing that no one is going to prosecute them? Because I, I've personally been aware of cases where someone who would not have been eligible in one province uh, was eligible in another. And this is not supposed to be the case because it's a federal law. So I'm, I'm wondering what's gone so wrong here already, even before this liberal government expansion kicks in. I have like 10 answers to that, but uh, just quickly. <laughs> Please, I'll the floor say, is yours. <laughs> sorry, I'll say like, first of all, very concerning, there is geographic variation across Canada, which shows that there are different cultural practices. Quebec has the highest rate in the whole world you know, right now, um, as they mentioned in the article, BC, I think also. Uh, certain areas of BC and, and even certain areas of Ontario. So there, the geographic uh, changes should alarm us. It means that there's a lack of standardization. Two, the legislation is meant to protect, protect made assessors and providers. It hasn't thought enough about patient protection. Like I said, they've talked about accessibility and protecting uh, the made assessors and providers, but not enough thought has been given about patient protections. Uh, three, you have a government that has allowed Health Canada to kind of use our most ideologically, um, I would say, out there um, leaders on this issue to guide our policy. That's not usually how we develop policy. We usually try to find a balance. But you have people like Jocelyn Downey, Mona Gupta, people who have basically expressed that they want the kind of widest open made regime who are leading our Canadian policies, which is dangerous for everybody. And then fourth, I would say that, you know, a lot of made assessors and providers that I know are actually very concerned about made outside the end of life context, and they do refuse cases. But all you need to have is a few people who are willing to kill or end the lives of many people. And you have a big problem given the way our system is set up. That is itself jarring, because I, I think that for the current time anyway, and I, I fear that this could be under threat with a different government, physicians have the right to uh, object. And, and you, you talk about this in your piece, they're conscientious objectors. But even that you have a, an issue with uh, in how that's applied. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Issue. Yeah, I have a big issue with, and actually, yeah, this is what we interviewed with me for a few years ago. Mm -hmm. is that initially in Ontario, the CPSO came up with this wacky policy, and I'll call it that, called a, of effective referral, where a physician needs to, again, considering accessibility and timeliness, needs to make an effective referral to another provider who will do, do the service. Um, and, and that basically puts patients on a very dangerous path. If everyone has to funnel people onto a death regime pathway you, you that partly i think explains why we have such high numbers in canada 16,000 estimated for 2023 well to interject this is the problem of having only a few people that do it right because now if everyone has to everyone has to direct them to those people 
So even actually, if you're a maid provider who is not comfortable with the case, and that's what I highlight in my policy uh, piece for McDonald Laurier. So even if you're a maid provider mm -hmm. who is uncomfortable. So one of the people, the trainees said they were uncomfortable with made for poverty. And the, the expert said, well, okay, fine. Your conscience says you can't do this, but you need to make a referral. And hopefully, hopefully someone else will do it. So if you keep putting someone on a pathway, they're going to find a maid provider who... Uh, who, if they continue on that path, which technically if every physician keeps putting them on that path, they're going to find somebody who will eventually do it. And there was a story, I think it came out in the, in the Ottawa Citizen, but an Ottawa paper about a woman who, who basically was referred on six or seven times until she finally found someone in Brampton who would complete her maid case. And, and, and they were talking about how sad it was that she had to go through seven, seven providers. And I guess the real question is like, why were those six providers who are okay with maid not okay with giving her maid? Like, could it be that this should have been stopped? Yeah, that, that's tragic. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again at its, at its macabre end. Uh, Dr. Ramona Coelho, fantastic piece, very grim, but I think important in the McDonald Laurier Institute. Barriers to care persist, but access to maid keeps expanding. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. All right, yourself as well. It's always difficult getting family physicians on because they are just like worked morning tonight. So we're, we're so glad she could uh, fit us in on short notice. Uh, we are out of time for today, but I, I wanted to give you a bit of a heads up on what's coming on the show tomorrow. I sat down yesterday with Kevin Vong, who is a an independent liberal member of parliament, elected as a, that's me on the left there. No, sorry, I'm on the right. Kevin Vong's on the left. I, uh, I got us mixed up. Uh, the No, I was actually, my, my screen was reversed. But uh, this is going to be a fascinating interview. It's about what you can do, or in some cases, what you can't do as an independent member of parliament. And that is coming out tomorrow. We'll have a full, I think, 45 minute or so wide ranging chat and a very interesting news story that I think is going to emerge from that interview. So uh, keep an eye out. That's going to be tomorrow at the usual time, one o'clock Eastern, 11 a.m. Mountain. I am off next week, so uh, you will be able to keep up to date on the regular old True North content. But on Thursday, I will be on off the record once again. So we'll hopefully have enough to keep you tied it over until I return in a week and a half's time. Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.